Yeah, should we start the show? Yeah, so, but uh, by starting, you gotta tell me about this new sweater you're wearing here. Uh, I dig it, and I don't think I've seen this one before. Is this new? Yes, yeah, the Kraken. I think it's like an off-brand thing just from a fan site, but I like that it has the anchors. Appropriate for this episode. Um, dressed it- as a midshipman for the Kraken. For the Kraken. <laughs> Is that what you guys are calling yourself? It's a good name. <laughs> we it's should. I, I like the I like the color layout of it with the the bright yeah, orange cool. there as well, of course, with the uh, the turquoise. Oh, it's a nice like you know uh, pattern the whole way down. What do you call that in stripes? Yeah, it's a good way to incorporate like the eye of the Kraken into like the shoulder stripes. And it's it's it, a good uh, design. I don't think I've given you your chance yet since you haven't launched your hockey podcast <laughs> offshoot yet. You so you can go ahead and use this opportunity to kind of. Uh, gloat about the new seattle team um so we announced uh we have a new announcer um they're joining also root sports which is like the mariners network uh that came out this week um we're still we don't have a team quite yet right like we don't have any players uh, it's <laughs> for now we're like passionate about the laundry um like okay I, th- this is not a fact that i realized and that makes it a lot funnier to me that you have all this <laughs> merch and stuff for a team that doesn't actually exist yet yes it's all in theory i'm a huge kraken fan um kraken <laughs> also brought to seattle by the jerry bruckheimer so another pirates uh, naval connection uh yeah but on on the opposite end when it comes yes. to this film We'll, uh, we'll get that. into that a lot. Um, <laughs> I'm excited. We're talking about Master and Commander later in the show. Um, I know you have a surprise for us, and, and your surprises are always decent. Um, we're going to do uh, part two of our adventures of, uh, uh, what would you say, Spielberg? Um, yeah, ad- adventures of Spielberg. I feel like that's a, that's a good way of characterizing it. Uh, and there's, a not- good, there's a good movie that's out in January. Is there? It's oh, okay, yeah. No, you, must be f- you must be full of shit. That can't be right. Should I just get into that one first? Yeah, um, let's let's hear it because I, I legitimately don't believe you, and I'm okay. ready to, to end the podcast over this controversy. The problem is, I don't think you'd believe me after you saw it. I I don't think other people <laughs> are going to love it necessarily. It takes a lot of shots at critics, so um, it's Malcolm and Marie, the new Sam Levinson. Of course, we look at him uh, through like the eyes of nepotism, and right, like everyone thinks, oh, Barry Levinson, and uh, we mm-hmm. we kind of give him a short shrift as a director but i thought ass nation as i call it assassination nation was a lot of fun and subversive and interesting i think this is an interesting follow-up it's just two actors it's so far the most useful thing i've seen done with the limitations of quarantine because it's just uh zendaya and john david washington they're having a heated argument about his directing career um he based a character on um her character uh, her life story which is just of addiction and heartbreak and that he forgot to thank her at the premiere of his new film um uh despite all that he's like well the guy the white guy from IndieWire loved my movie so of course i had to get on and see a uh, david ehrlich's uh, review <laughs> right away which is like a five out of ten and then he's like slamming this la times critic because the woman from la times wrote a disparaging review <laughs> about his nepotism for assassination nation so um, it's very self-reflexive and it's very desperate for attention. Uh, have I convinced you it's good yet? <laughs> no. Well, you know, uh, I think uh, in light of uh, recent events this week, uh, us critics could use uh, knocking down a few pegs. Uh, 
course, without naming any names. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, th- I think that's a, a fun thing to do. You know, sometime. Yeah, yeah I, I, I like stories about critics. I'm a fan of, uh, you know, pandering to, to me, even if it's in a negative way like that. Sure. Yeah, I, I think negative pandering to critics is really interesting. Uh, we, especially we, respond, this we respond well to that. Yeah. Like, you know, we need to cover the critics sometime on here because that's the oh, kind yeah. of shit that, that we're... Uh, that, that we should be uh, very capable of. <laughs> sure, I do a whole episode on that because, you know, criticism is equal to creation. <laughs> uh, that it's, it's very good. I feel like I've been waiting for many years for Zendaya to really emerge. And I was like, really, it's just euphoria. That's, that's her big break. But I'm happy that it's in a movie now because I think she's always had it. And it can't just be like the girl from Greatest Showman. I mean, she needs a more elaborate credit that really shows off her whole range and i think this does it uh so good vehicle for her and i think john david washington sometimes he's better than denzel i think we have a denzel movie that oh, 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 right, 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 hold on hold on hold on i don't know i don't know about that we're talking like you know didn't tenet just come out last year that's a yeah and he's the good part of tenet i mean the good part <laughs> he's badly lit in like a subtly racist way that it seems like no one doesn't know how to light <laughs> black people but i that's a little dangerous um it's just it's an homage to films from the 40s when they also <laughs> didn't know how to uh like black people <laughs> okay so here's the thing you like you might like uh the characters constantly throwing out like weiler and all these old hollywood directors that he wishes that critics would say that he's in comparison with it's about like how black directors are only put up against spike lee and barry jenkins and how it's hard to get like a new break and be compared to the the master class of directors nobody's like this new black director is the orson wells of cinema right it's always oh is it the next spike lee why why can't it be a whole range so sure 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 because yeah. uh yeah no i i can agree with that philosophy i think people are very narrow-minded when it comes to that and they're like uh what, what are the black directors that we know <laughs> sure but also i'm like is, who's calling any white directors out there the next Orson Welles? Because I got beef with them too. That doesn't. That nobody's arisen like that. Come on now. <laughs> Just David Fincher. But it seems that there's a there's a huge disparity in how we evaluate like the white directors and how we kind of group even like our subtle constructed racisms of black directors. But uh, thanks for the white director <laughs> Sam Levinson for bringing that yeah. <laughs> valuable tidbit to us. A L- uh, little bit of irony, but you know. Yeah, Sam Levinson of nepotism fame, <laughs> bringing us. I a... just, I just want to say while we're on that as well, I don't hate Barry Levinson. You know, no, I like Rain no. Man. I think Rain Man is good. Uh, it's sweet. From, yeah. From from my memory, it's better than Forrest Gump, at least, right? I think we can agree. <laughs> oh with yeah. That. Uh, I don't know after that though, uh, but I'll give him that at least. <laughs> yeah, I think. Well, Sam Levinson also worked on Euphoria, and this is about Zendaya as a muse and. I just think that that kind of thing's really interesting. So I don't think it will be critically interesting to almost anyone else. But for me, that's an experiment worth doing. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like something. Well, I'm glad that your January has, uh, you know, managed to brighten up in, in the last week here. Uh, you know, so it wasn't a total Ooh, shit yeah. show. <laughs> and uh, after this, I have uh, Judah and the Black Messiah tonight. So very Ooh. excited. Yeah, that's the the one on everyone's lips right now. Everyone's yeah. looking forward to that. So I after hope to that, hear good after news that, I that could. Uh, oh, sorry, I could finalize my my thing after that, and we could start talking about the award season with Seattle critics soon. And F- finalize your twenty twenty one list. You're already ready to go in for 
contenders for 2021. We're matching the Oscars in uh, Seattle <laughs> Film Critics. So we had an extended two-month season. Um, it'll be interesting to see what rises to the top because it's such a divided year. Everyone saw different things. Mm. Yeah, I, I was excited to close the book on 2021 already. I thought that would yeah. be a nice way to just wrap things up. Can we? <laughs> we got one good movie already. Let's let's just stop there. <laughs> I, I It'll be weird though, because that's going to be included in the 2020 Oscars, right? Like, uh, they they're, they're campaigning it that way. So the next year's Oscars are going to be a very short season, unless we just start doing it in March every year. Oh, uh, you know, it's not like the pool of films they actually consider is that big to begin with. No, it's not. So, it's you know, uh, <laughs> what what releases in November, right? That's the yeah. usual pool. Yeah. So you know, I'm sure we get the exact amount of films that we would have gotten <laughs> had they, you know. No, you're totally right. Parameters. (laughs) You're totally right. There's a two-month release window where Oscar-relevant films come out, and the rest is all exceptions. Yep. Uh, So what's your your surprising tidbit? I know you have something. All right, all right. So I decided, uh, I I was thinking about something, because you've been asking me to bring a film or some kind of discussion to the first half of the podcast for... It's entire existence now, really. Yes. Um, I bug you every week. <laughs> and, and usually I'm just like, ah, oh, you know, just here, let me talk about this movie I watched. It was pretty good. but And and they don't have much consistency between them because, you know, I'm not always watching great films every week. If I, oh. if I dedicate so much time to watching all these old Hollywood movies, but I've watched so many of the classics that it's a lot of like mediocre junk now. You know, like, you know, I'll watch like five Cary Grant movies that are like, eh, it's all right. You yeah. know, I like Cary grant but that's all that's good in this movie you're in like the later careers of some prestige directors right now mm. so. but but i'm also turning my attention to other things and i spend some of my time watching some of these and i thought to, to kind of me on theme i don't know if i'm going to stay consistent with this so okay. don't hold me to this even starting next week but uh i'm <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna i think highlight maybe like some uh documentaries that i'm watching oh, sweet um, I know you like lots of documentaries and I enjoy watching a good documentary from time and you know, every, uh, so often, though my, my scope of them is admittedly a little smaller, you know, appealing mostly to film or history subject matter mm-hmm. still, but I, I've enjoyed quite a bit of them and have a lot I want to share. And I, I usually watch like one every week or two weeks or so. So I think, uh, could talk about what I've been watching or, uh, what I have watched before, even if I run it, run out one week. I'm curious uh, what you found. I, I don't well, know what docs you watch. Lately. Well, this, this, yeah. And that's the other thing is I thought it might catch that surprise because I don't talk about them as much. I mostly just yeah. watch them and consume them on my own. But uh, uh, this week I'm starting out a little more inflammatory because of watch it's a 1977 documentary called uh, Hitler, a career. Oh, because you were learning German, we we decided no, that you've taken it too far. <laughs> so, so the fact that I am learning German and I, I happen to watch a documentary on Hitler have have nothing in common. There, <laughs> at least one just, thing I could think of. <laughs> All right, mate, one, one thing, but it's entirely coincidental. Okay, yeah. Don't worry, I'm not I'm not leaning any more to the right here. <laughs> uh, we just now, got. We just got rid of our Nazi. You really need to go there. <laughs> oh, you know, there was a vacancy. I figured somebody's got to fill it. <laughs> I'm very curious what your takeaways are here. No, uh, I was interested because, um, you know, I think that's a period of history that sometimes we're all a little uncertain of. Like, you know, the the evilness of the, the Nazi regime is hammering into us to such a, you know, extreme point that it's really like this 
uh, almost kind of nebulous idea at the same time. Like we we understand how awful and horrid it is, but at the same time, it's to a point where we we're sometimes like afraid to see just what it is and what happened there. And there's definitely a, a sense of kind of mystery surrounding it. Like mm-hmm. how how if this was so obvious, how did this happen? How did the, you know this guy come and sweep in and take over all of Germany like this and then invade you know almost you know like half of Europe? Uh, that's that's really scary, yeah. <laughs> and and it's really interesting when you consider as well that it's all extremely well documented. There's hundreds and hundreds of hours of footage of you know the the Nazis and Hitler and such, and uh, a lot of it we don't always see we're not shown it in, in any great detail certainly not like when you're learning in history books and stuff you know you don't see the footage no. of it <laughs> not and a lot of nuance even in our history books right cer- certainly not in our history books anyway no. but um and so i was interested to see and particularly because it was an older documentary you know uh there's like millions of documentaries on the nazis of course so yes. maybe <laughs> more think, than anything else yeah and it, it, it's weird it, that's what i thought like you know for such a subject that's so over discussed uh we really don't get much exposure to it yeah uh, it, right. at least in any kind of like significant detail it's like mostly like ah nazis bad you know <laughs> kill you know millions of people you know and 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 like the broader details of things but uh, I was particularly interested, like, all right, so how did we get here? Like, how how did this changeover happen? And, uh, you know, I think that was one area where, where I could have used a little bit more clarification in the doc- documentary. And this is going to take just more research on my own end as well. And it just goes to show how convoluted politics can be like because and everywhere i looked i'm reading i'm like all right so so how did this happen when did everyone just accept this change from the the weimar republic which was Mm -hmm. functioning decently until the market crash uh and then of course that's what kind of pushed everyone to the more authoritarian side and embraced the nazi party but like then hitler became chancellor and then suddenly the president dies and now he's you know, he just combines and consolidates power. But usually they just sum it up by saying he consolidated power. Like, what does that mean? Yeah. Uh, all right, so so everyone was just cool with abandoning the Republic and becoming a totalitarian state? Like, like people just went along with it? I don't know. Like, I, I would think personally, like, I'm like, so we're, we're just abandoning everything that we are. We're ditching our flags and stuff. We're calling ourselves by a new name. And like, how does that happen? I don't know. That wasn't something that I felt was covered, but I also haven't seen it covered very well elsewhere. So I'll be interested to find. But what was really effective for me, I found, was like just the the seeing of a lot of the footage. The documentary opens up with like color footage of of Hitler kind of riding in and and doing in parades and stuff, which is it's all the more eerie in, in color. It gives it a greater sense of, you know, reality that you don't really consider because everything is always uh documented in black and white from like the 30s and 40s. So when you do see the rare color footage, it's it's a little more alarming and it feels all the more real, you know, yeah, it, all, it all gets blown up to a point of total, you know, uh, mysticism. Uh, so when, when you do get the chance to get grounded and take it for, for real, it is very haunting. I feel like I it's so believable when I see like occult Nazi films or something like I, it's so easy to buy into that idea because it's how it's been sold to me my entire life. Like, you know, like playing like Medal of Honor and like Call of Duty games, and it's it's always like the most heightened version of what actually happened. 
I think one one of the most interesting things as well is, is when you sit back and, and kind of consider it is how like not far off American nationalism is from Nazism. Like Pretty we close, act eh? like it's it's the farthest thing in the world, and we were like nothing like that in any conceivable way. But then you also consider like all of our military, you know, parades and all this, you know, rampant jingoism that's just kind of fed into our culture and this like rah rah Americanism and and everything, and you're like. How do we not beat these guys to the punch? We're two goose steps away from getting there. Yeah, it's and it's it's really crazy sometimes. Like uh, Americanism is is really like it's its own bizarre. beast. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 it makes me uncomfortable. The more aware of it I become, and and so when you yeah. see like I don't know, like I even think about you think about like dystopian prediction depictions of things. Like I remember, you remember like playing Bioshock Infinite and oh yeah like, the yeah and and the kind of america they found it there it, it does not seem that unrealistic when you when no. you kind of look at things <laughs> i mean it seems so bizarre when i was playing those bioshocks and uh, thinking about like that and randian american yeah. ideal in those games and it, it was so distant from what i knew of america but it's so close to where we are now <laughs> it's and in some yeah. ways it's always kind of been like that but yeah, it is uh you know it, it's not what you what we feel at least on like an individual level uh but some people certainly feel that way like very adamantly and uh, as as we've seen for quite some time here <laughs> um so would you say would you say you'd recommend it what was it called hitler and uh hitler a a career is what it was called okay. um and i i would recommend it it was kind of a long watch it was uh two and a half hours uh so you know it, it took like a good afternoon to see it but i also found out that there's like a another documentary on hitler from the same year uh that's like twice as long so i'm like oh okay. maybe this is even more informative and I, I gotta hunt that down at some point but uh yeah, yeah. i would recommend i would recommend it if, if you're interested in 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 learning about that and kind of witnessing it uh it's not the most in-depth uh, mm. explanation i've seen but um as far as just like, you know, uh, presenting archival footage with proper context and uh, information, I think it's, uh, you know, a, a great example of that. Sweet. Um, I like this new feature. I, I hope you'll carry through with it the next few weeks at least. Yeah, we'll see how, how long this. Uh, well, whenever you get to docs, <laughs> you don't have to do it every week. Um, uh, I mean, I, I've, I've been liking, like, I. I tend to watch them on like Saturdays or something yeah. when I've got extra time and I'm just like relaxing and I'm like, I want something that's going to stimulate me, but is, doesn't require a whole lot of engagement from me. Just like plug information directly into my brain. And uh, that's why I like to kind of fall back on them. Yeah. We've kind of always got docs on um, and I get fixated on that stuff. I not so much the informational ones always, um, You'll have to let me know if they get like two like historical ones. If you're like David, this is the fifth documentary on Thomas Jefferson you've brought this week. <laughs> I think it would be fascinating, but uh, we'll see what you get to. If it's all Hitler, I might cut you off after. Yeah, yeah, there might be a problem. Uh, if, if you start there's reviewing, a more. if you I start already started getting, <laughs> if you start reviewing them in German, I'm gonna have to cut you off these Hitler ducks. <laughs> I started getting recommendations for more and like putting them. I'm like, oh, this sounds interesting. Put it by watch this. I'm like, all right, but I can't bring that one next time because then it's going to look like a pattern. And then I'm going to start, you know, getting letters in the mail. <laughs> I think like you say, it's so overexposed to a certain point. It's like, I, I know so much and also nothing. 
um, mm -hmm. because it's been fed to me in a constant stream of, you know, like anti-Nazi propaganda, obviously. Yeah. Um, our, our education has mostly been through like, you know, propaganda, like you stated there. So it is interesting to see the, the more nuanced aspects and the real things. And it doesn't take away from that. If anything, it only like gives you greater understanding and appreciation for like the uh, e absolute evil at the at the core of it. But the human evil of it, not oh, the, yeah. not the kind of like, you know, banal and, you know, ambiguous evil. I think it's almost dangerous in a way that we've cartoonized them so much that we can't recognize it in ourselves. Um, in, in some way, if it were more clear what exactly that danger was and not a cartoon, we might yeah. just see it reflected back to us right now. Right. Like it's it's to a point where we've characterized Nazis as the evil and not mm. fascism and, yes. <laughs> you know, uh, hyper nationalism. Exactly. Um, I, I, because of that, I haven't done a ton of reading because it feels so overexposed, and yet I, I don't have as much info as I'd like. But uh, Blitzed was a good book a few years ago about how uh, drugs in the Third Reich, right, I think right. it was called. <laughs> that's that's something I've heard a bit more, like the, the usage of methamphetamine to like. Oh, it's fascinating. The, the yeah. German troops, yeah. I mean, that also plays into like my cartoon conceptions, of course, that we're feeding <laughs> methamphetamines to super soldiers and they're becoming like super Saiyans, right? Like it's it's some real bullshit, but it's also real fun. But well, there, there is book. like I think there's an undeniable cartoony aspect to the Nazis, like oh, that's yeah. why they're why it's so you know paritable. Uh, you know that you you can do stuff like the producers and make them total laughing stocks because it it doesn't take that much to push it into the extremity of farce, but at the same time you know that farce was still genocidal and yes. you know uh, in imperialistic. <laughs> it's fascinating, but I'll be open to hearing about any that you do watch. So thanks yeah, for the just, new feature. Just, uh, not not in sequence, you know, in sequence here. <laughs> yes. I'll, I'll break it up. Less Nazi content, uh, you know, more spread out. <laughs> Nazi canon uh, with, <laughs> with David. <laughs> um, speaking of Nazi canon, I watched a, a new uh, Spielberg. Uh, I, I can't find the transition anymore. There's something there. Raiders, Lost Ark, Nazis, Spielberg. Schindler's List. Uh... Yeah, we got there. there there's <laughs> enough of a connection. <laughs> I'm not saying he's a Nazi. <laughs> Uh, so the terminal uh, we we talked about Spielberg a lot last week and this is uh, continuing our adventures with uh, Tintin Spielberg um, who uh, is so endearing I think in my head I, I should watch someone else like uh, he's such a well-profiled director um, I mean like like the Nazis we've heard a lot about Spielberg and <laughs> so much that we know less than we think we do because uh, when you really look deeply into his work there's still a lot to extract um, especially after watching our um, Jacques Tati uh, movies recently going into the terminal I could see like all of playtime like replicated um, they created a they created their own space within a hangar so he looked all over America for the right airport to stand in as uh, one of the ones in New York, one of the major ones, um, and you should have feels... just gone to SeaTac, right? <laughs> yes. That's what that's what you're working yes. up to saying, and you can say it. I know that SeaTac <laughs> is a beautiful airport. It's busy as fuck. Yeah, it is. Uh, and I, and I don't like driving to it, but like I like the interior, the design of SeaTac is great. I like that they're doing like Pearl Jam or Alice in Chains while you're getting ready to board your plane. I love that background music. Um, 
I just uh, like the fish, the fish everywhere, all over the floor. They got yeah. the salmon, like, kind of dictating the pathways. It's adorable. And I love a good, like, airport design, too. Like, airports are so uniquely fascinating to me because every one of them is different that I've been to. Like, I've been to some, like, Frankfurt in Germany that feels exactly like, I think it was, like, LAX. Like, I was like, <laughs> this is the same airport as in LA. Um, there's, like, these templates, but everything has its own unique identity. Like, you fly into a different country, and it has the same formal design and function, but... Um, like I went into like Palm Springs uh, a few months ago and it's just like you walk into a desert. It's just open skies and mountains. I, I love like the full airport experience, but I think terminal conveys a very specific New Yorky one. That's uh, pretty fun. Um, it's not like jocks to tea in any other meaningful ways. <laughs> like, like you do have the bumbling hero who can't quite speak English and he has to learn it off the TVs and everything. So unlike uh Tati's heroes or uh, not even heroes but uh, I'd say like side characters that exist in the center of the frame like uh, uh, here you actually have a narrative with a with a defined hero in Tom Hanks and and he does have to learn the language and um, well his land has been taken over uh, it's switching governments he he's a man without a country which makes it interesting uh, just the premise of being stuck in an airport interests me. <laughs> if I if I recall right, Terminal is based like sort of on a true story. Yeah. Uh, obviously, I'm sure like less whimsy in that, more you know, <laughs> depressing isolation and you know, uh, bureaucratic failings. But you know, I'm sure there's not like a meet cute and a romantic archetype that happens in the middle of a, a Sabaros. The, the the guy this happened to didn't get a fuck Catherine Zeta Jones at the end of the story. Unfortunately. <laughs> no. Um, it is funny how he's like returning carts for money and picking up Burger King, but I, th- I believe the real story happened in Paris um, or uh, somewhere in France. Uh, so I, so I, Royale's with cheese. Instead yeah, of... <laughs> exactly. That should be the only difference. Um, <laughs> I, I connected with it a lot more than I thought I would. I always remembered a soft spot for uh, the terminal, which I think is a really cute Tom Hanks movie anyway. Um, I'm pretty that's soft for like, those. So. That's what it seems like in my memory, but yeah. uh, it's also been like quite quite a few years. I remember watching it. I was like, this doesn't feel like the strongest Spielberg oh. film, but I liked it. I I, I kind of remember anyway. Uh, like as far as like airport or like flying stuff, I, I I have more fondness for like Catch Me If You Can in my memory. Oh, yeah. uh, it's kind of a lot like Castaway, but he's grounded. I mean, like it's funny because he's just as abandoned as in Castaway, but around so many people. I mean, same sense of isolation and loneliness. But yeah, I, and I, I like the Tati comparison just because, like, I yeah. can kind of see a visual parallel with uh, Tom Hanks. You know, as kind of like this gangly, tall, <laughs> yeah, you know, dude who's uh, bumbling around a, 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 you know, an airport. Yeah, I like like the playtime vibes. I can totally kind of see that. It's obviously, like not being as good as that. <laughs> My favorite Tati and Tom Hanks moment is when they walk up to him and he's just finished the drywall of his part he's been staying at, and he like swings his legs out and does a little Tati dance. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty funny, and he backs up into them. And, um, yeah, he takes on all these side jobs. It's really fun for me to see like just a fish out of water story where someone invests themselves in an unlikely place and succeeds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm happy to hear that it uh, held up for you. It might uh, inspire me to rewatch <laughs> at some point. We're really going for an audience this week. <laughs> I don't think a, I don't think there's like a, a set audience that applies to uh, Malcolm and Marie Hitler, uh, <laughs> the terminal and master and commander. I'm not sure what we've done with our podcast. <laughs> 
We're casting as big a net as we can. Yeah, we are. Um, and with that, uh, should we take a short break and come back? Sure, short break. Cue the music. Safe and sound at home again. Let the waters roar, Jack. Safe and sound at home again. Let the waters roar, Jack. Long wing tossed on the rolling main. Now we're safe ashore, Jack. Don't forget your old shipmates. Self-sim gun, quarter deck division, sponger eye and loader you through the whole commission. Long we tossed on the rolling main, now we're safe ashore, Jack. Don't forget your old shipmates. Rally, 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 ride on. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, master and commander. This this was a, a impromptu, I think. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because I, I just happened to watch this on a whim because I saw it was on Amazon. It's been on my watch list forever because people have been like <laughs> championing it for, for a good couple years now. And then like your your reaction to it, me watching it was like, dude, we should podcast sometime. I'm like, oh, well, why don't we do it next? Yeah. Um, and were you encouraged at all by the Twitter debate that's been going on about this? <laughs> you know, what's funny is that uh, I was planning on on watching it before, like, because I saw it was on Amazon before uh, Russell Crowe Crow had his tweet about it. But then I ended up watching it, like, like because I saw it that day, I was like, well, now I have to watch it today. Uh, I, I'm being urged to by Twitter gods, apparently. <laughs> so what was it that... I think like the crux of his tweet was that it's a mature movie and that it's not boring. It's, it's actually like a work of like, it's yeah, it's a great detailed work <sighs> by, you know, a, a veteran uh, director, you know, with so much heart put into it. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, this, this person just has a really short attention span, <laughs> uh, you know, from the new generation. He, he took it as a chance to dunk on millennials when, you know, that it's also yeah. pretty, pretty outdated. This person's probably more, Gen Zer at this point, uh, because yeah. the offending tweet was that they were like, "Oh, if you ever wanted, you know, just fall right asleep, put on Master and <laughs> Commander," is because it's so boring. And uh, I think it got it. And something... they, they added Russell Crowe too, which yeah. is like, all, like <laughs> it's one thing to post like your shitty take or to don't get on a movie online, but it's another thing like don't at the at the guy about it, and then like you, you know. He doesn't have to respond like like people do that, you know, under the assumption that these, you know, blue check marks aren't ever going to, you know, get back to them. They're not going to pay any attention to these, but they do. And much less that that's the tweet of Russell Crowe. that's so going to go more viral than a tweet he's ever sent. Like, yeah, this this poor guy. Um, and, it, and it brings out all the, the master and command stands and they're all cheering. It there are a them. lot. Uh, I think what we realized is this movie is extremely well respected. I mean. It, so, it kind of came went quietly because it went up against like a Lord of the Rings that you're at the not, Oscars. Not, not just Lord of the Rings. It went up against the Return first of the Pirates of the Caribbean film. <laughs> that was a few months before this came out, I believe. It, yeah. it had the worst launch cycle around Wh- other which movies. Which is like, of all films, like 
like these kind of movies, these seafaring, big ship mm-hmm. swashbuckling films, they were dead before the Pirates yeah. film came along. They didn't exist. Like, you know, Cutthroat Island, huge, like, Titanic bomb, and, and you know, that obviously proved that. And then Waterworld, Pir- right? Yeah. Fan- Pir- Pirates of the Caribbean swoops in in 2003 on the back of Hans Zimmer's <laughs> stolen score from Gladiator and right. just, like, entirely triumphs and breaks records and shit. And, like, this film master and commander was geared up to be like an equivalent like big ass blockbuster based on these acclaimed novels and it was going to be first in a series and it tanked because it just it couldn't compete against pirates who just kind of swept in and stole the thunder just a few months before which is such a shame because i think we could generally (laughs) agree that there is a better made film between the two and it's not the one with ghost pirates although that one is really I think they represent two opposite ends of a spectrum of seafaring movies. Yeah. It's interesting that two of our most relevant modern examples came out within weeks of each other, really. Right. Um, there's uh, it's such unfortunate timing because this is such a realistic and uh, I'd say like navally sound. I mean, it it's nautically interesting in a way that I, I can't think of a better example of a nautical movie that gets all these details, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's very few like I, I've always championed like Jaws as a film like I really like to like be on the water with like it gives yeah. me that same kind of experience but this is obviously like on a total other end and like a big you know uh, 18 you know like early 18, uh, 19th century you know galleon but uh, you know and this isn't to say that the first Pirates film is bad or like a poor example I think mm-hmm. it's it's a very different kind of movie and we should do a future podcast on it to discuss its merits because, you know, this, this film is entirely different in what it aims to be <laughs> and what it achieves. And it's like in its particular attentions as well. So, like you said, we could have forget the MCU. We could have got the MNCU. <laughs> um, this is three of, I believe, a series of 20 books. So three of them are combined into this one adventure, which is, which makes it epic, but it's so controlled. I mean, Peter Weir, of course, is a renowned <laughs> filmmaker who was kind of at the top of his craft and hadn't made that many movies and hasn't really done very much of anything. I think since. He's done like one movie since then in like 2010. He did The Way Back, and then uh, yeah, he's been radio silent for more than a decade, which it's is really a shame. Which is really disappointing because he's uh, quite the the modern director. Yeah. I mean, this is exactly what I think modern movies are missing, this like epic scale that's not a fantasy. I mean, I'd love to see more movies like this. I'd go to all of them. Yeah, well, what's more important to it than the scale, I would argue, is the the intimacy, you know, the relationship it gives you between the characters and the, the actual like the ground sense of consequence to it. One of the things I was really struck by with the film, because I, I looked at it and, uh, and uh, you know, because I was watching with my fiance and she, she was saying, you know, oh, is this like an, you know, an R-rated, you know, we're going to get to see actual blood in this movie. I'm like, oh, no, no, it's PG-13. This is going to be some Pirates of the Caribbean shit, you know, not, not really. getting any blood here. <laughs> yeah. And like in the early half, like a child gets his fucking arm blown <laughs> off and there's dudes like bleeding profusely, like, and Man, so many characters of like actual importance die in the film, and I and I am shocked. I was shocked by the the gall of that to in a, in a big blockbuster like this to take this time and invest all these characters 
and then give them meaningful deaths. That yeah. doesn't happen. You know, we don't see that in modern movies. I mean, it's all about like the grit and rawness of like a war at sea too. I mean, uh, it's it's a really interesting adventure in that um, it doesn't fall into a lot of like the pirate movie tropes. Like uh, no. nobody on the crew tries to overthrow the captain, which is something that happens in every other naval movie I could think of. Right. It's not, it's not really a pirate movie. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's it, uh, like, I, I would kind of categorize it in the same feeling I get watching those, particularly like, you know, of course the big battle sequences it has, but it's not, it's not about pirates. It doesn't have like the kind of grubbiness of the pirates. It's way more about like, you know, being this, this more period oriented, you know, uh, assessment of like the Napoleonic era and these British, you know, ships, uh, and it, it, it's a swashbuckling movie, but it's also just mostly kind of an adventure, you know, kind of flick. I, I wouldn't categorize it as pirates. There aren't any pirates in the movie, so yeah, it's, a, it's, not, as, it's not a pirate movie. <laughs> as far as nautical films go, I'd say they always fall into the same, all these same tropes about what they're going to do, overthrowing a captain. And I, I feel like this strays away from most of them. Yeah, um, it doesn't go the mutiny on the bounty. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm happy about it too that it doesn't have any real asides. I mean, it has uh, some stopovers in land and it's all about the singular mission in a yeah, way. I mean, I, I would say that like the Galapagos section is like a stopover, but they, they so smartly... It does have one, yeah. They, do, they so smartly weave in this tangent into the plot because the, you know, for it... it you could argue that it's a little aimless. Like the plot is, is almost secondary to what's going on, but it's always present. Like the mission is very clear and you're given, you know, occasional reminders of it, that they're tracking this one ship. So when they do stop over on the Galapagos, even though it is like a total side mission for Paul Bettany's character, uh, you know, that the other ship is still present and, and moving around the islands. And so it's not, you know, that they've abandoned the plot. It's still happening as they're doing this, you know, tangential aspect. Well, the main important thing for me is that it never leaves the side of the people on the uh, Surprise, which is the name of the, the ship, their vessel. Mm -hmm. um, it never goes on to another ship that they're opposing and, and takes their perspective. It's always from the crew. Uh, whether or not they stop over, they don't have to go back to home and see what it's like in England because as russell crowe says the ship is england yeah so that, that was one thing i uh i picked up uh, i started listening to the first book uh, on an uh, audible did. yeah i did uh after this because I, like, I was excited to get into it but uh i'm already not like too much of a fiction person to begin mm -hmm. with when it comes to books it's a little harder for me to get into and so i ended up putting it down after a few chapters because uh it just it, it wasn't grabbing me particularly because it starts in england it, it, like we're not even on the boat in the beginning right. it takes a bit for him to kind of like get going and, and he gets his promotion and like i'm just I, I was a little bogged down by it and i wasn't taken by the characters as they were being read to me as <laughs> i was in in the uh the film like and and that i think is part not, less because of the writing and more because of the the reading and the performance of it it was it was like this very haughty uh British performer. And yeah, I, like, ah, I, picked just... it up. I picked it up as well and got about two chapters in and thought I'll just stick with the movie for now. <laughs> oh, I'm glad we're on the same page here. Yeah. So uh even though you... it's a very very lauded series of books, uh neither you or I could get into them. <laughs> you have to imagine that this movie is three books worth of content that it takes them a while to get to the French ship. Like um that must be 
uh, several missions combined or something. I don't know how he navigated uh, combining that into one movie. Well, and, and it's, I think it also goes to show like the uh, the importance in the medium difference there, and mm. uh, you know what what it takes when adapting a book uh, to to the screen. Because the film starts out brilliantly; it starts out with an engaging, you know, battle sequence just right off the bat. It throws you right into to to that, uh, and then it has, of course, the echoing one at the end. But it's it's a really like harrowing and you know uh, you know frenetic sequence you know and you've got like the accuracy of all the equipment and stuff there's a lot of like it introduces you to a lot of like naval ideals and terminology mm-hmm. and stuff like i think one of the moments that struck me that uh my fiance also had to point out was like did, did you catch when they were measuring the speed of the ship mm-hmm. like that's where they get the term from for for knots and that they had the sequence where they had like the rope running is it oh, yeah. stopwatch and so that's how they were telling the speed and i'm like oh that's a really cool detail that that's like a part of the terminology that I, you know i didn't know like that's where that comes from and it's like it's not like explained to you it's just it's, it's shown the to film, you yeah yeah the film doesn't like talk down to you in terms of like all of this jargon and stuff but it's also not like so inundated with it that you can't like get a grip of anything going on it's still like very you know easy to get into and the characters still feel very you know realistic and the the relationship they have between them all i think really just kind of like sucks you in it it has this kind of magneticism to it i think the napoleonic war is interesting because it went on for many many years and it's just always the British and the French fighting and you can make them do anything in any scenario in any fight. And I'd believe you because it could last <laughs> as long as it needs to. Cause if it went like almost a hundred years and the film lasts a hundred years, I'd believe you. Mm-hmm. I think this is a great example as well of the kind of historical fiction genre and that you yeah. take this, these real events and these real people, uh, but you, you, you kind of uh, infer the details of things and you allow, you give them these kind of extra things going on and such. And uh, you uh, specialize it a bit more. You make it, you know, um, a little more glamorous in, in some ways, and that makes it more entertaining. And, and I think it has a, you know, great avenue to it because it's also informative as well as being entertaining. Totally. So, yeah. so you take these already inherently interesting stories and you just give them the kind of narrative tweaks so that it's more, you know, palatable or, or presentable or more streamlined is what I'll say for any kind of uh, audience. Certainly more than these books, which already <laughs> were droning on after two chapters, I found. Well, yeah. And I'm sure the the books have their uh, value to people as well. Like I'm sure they're even more detail oriented and, and more immersive in that kind of world. But yeah, uh, I, I think that's definitely not what we wanted <laughs> no. after we watched the movie. Um, I wanted and- a Russell Crowe movie. Still, <laughs> I'll be honest. I mean, this is exactly that's, what I wanted. That's fair, and I think that like when you're listening to the book, you don't get the sense that jack is like russell crowe necessarily (laughs) it's a different experience and i think that's a a, it's a great uh artistic choice there like taking the character in a different direction uh but you know one appeals to us the other doesn't (laughs) yeah i mean there's also historic value all over the place in this movie too like we think about paul bettany's character which would be like tangential to like darwin or something like discovering these you know these beetles or whatever on on the uh galapagos and and uh, yeah, we think about what that traces back in science. And so it's not just a military uh, history documentary, or not a documentary, but a 
not just a military history, but also a scientific one. So it's that intersection of the modern, because once we're on these ships, that's what connects society. So it's really good at finding like that intersection between like science and war, because those always intersect throughout history. And that kind of gets me really excited. Like when he's scraping the shit out of the guy's brain with his coin. I mean, that's just a really cool moment because everyone's gathered around. They hadn't seen shit like that, that, that level of, uh, invention in medicine mm-hmm. there's that great sequence where he has to pull the bullet out of him and it's yeah. very and because they've already done like such a great job like killing off like characters in the film <laughs> like you're like he really could fucking die from this uh, and, and so it, it's got like a real palpable tension to it throughout the sequence and you feel the the pain of it like having to operate with these yeah. uh you know old old tools and stuff and like being unable to like look at yourself like having to operate on yourself is like oh my god <laughs> yeah um and it doesn't i mean it's able to establish these characters really well it like in these larger contexts which seem like huge and unfathomable for me to like move to the screen like they say like never to shoot a film on water right <laughs> like right and they really did like they had two full-size ships that they shot this on like Amazing. one that they actually took out in the water and one that was on like a gimbal and uh it's it's like incredible a- anytime a movie does that like even even if it's kind of you know maybe not great i think it's worth checking out because yeah. like just the the idea of seeing that and the scale of a ship like i don't think you get a sense with that in like a studio <laughs> set ship like seeing a ship itself and that's part of the allure of this i think overall is that that kind of detail and attention to things and just like the I, th- I think we all have fantasies of yeah. like like being a sailor and living on a ship sometimes. Oh, sure. I, I think that, that all exists. So so getting to live that vicariously without ever to actually go through the horrors of like that <laughs> actual living is is always a joy. Did you know that they only had about ten days to shoot on seat and everything else was in studio? That's that's kind of that's insane fucking insane, right? Like, because like how I mean, wouldn't it take ten days just to get out to sea? You would think, yeah. <laughs> I mean, what they got out of that is really remarkable for that short of a time. Yeah. And the rest is convincing that they would be on sea. And they do a lot with the camera, even inside the ship when they're in studio. Mm-hmm. That, that feels like you're at sea. It's it's really great. Uh, and, you know, all uh, riveting stuff. I love the, the, the battle sequences with the ships and stuff. They're, and, like, um... incredibly tactical, too. Like, I don't know, like, Navy tactics. So... Uh, when a movie can impress that on me that it's using legitimate like tactics and and I could really buy into that that's that's special it it feels like one of those submarine movies and it's tension like you're mm-hmm. coming up on another submarine or something and it yeah there's yeah, that it's so that cool. great sequence where they were they were trying to outrun the one ship and so they made like a decoy ship <laughs> with, with like the mast and stuff yeah. to, so, and then they turned off all their lights that was a great great scene of course uh, I love that it's it's been a little bit longer than usual but like you can see how it's all rushing back to me uh, having watched the film recently mm-hmm. and i'm thinking as well about like all the cast characters like i said they you know they kill off a bunch of them but they 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 really invest in one like that one i wish i remembered their names now but the one yeah, guy yeah. they have where he's like you know he feels like he's he's failing and he ends up like throwing himself off the ship because he's so haunted by everything here oh it's yeah it's horrible and ha- you know and, and haunting there's the like right when the battle starts too they have that one guy who who's like been an assistant like this whole time and he gets immediately shot in the head <laughs> And I, and I gasped. <laughs> it's so interesting how once they're placed in like the, in this confined vessel, they still replicate exactly the same hierarchy in society. Like 
like the boy's just there because he's of nobility and, and he's a lord like even even without an arm right like he becomes the he becomes who he needed to be within the story based on dude just, that kid that kid had has the best agent in the world for no him kidding. to get him that role like come on that's that's got to be a fucking dream as I, a kid i don't even <laughs> i don't like child actors i think he, he's pretty good um, you always say that but like every time you say i don't like child actors you're usually but, yeah. praising a child actor <laughs> <laughs> that's true um i think it's because you look at like the whole um history of children actors and we don't cover the all the bad ones that are out there at least we don't like to talk about them we yeah. kind of just brush them to the side i i think so it's always a, that um... i don't like the premise of children acting i i don't i don't think it's that there aren't good child actors but i think it's manipulative and strange to have them act uh, maybe i don't know as a as a former child actor myself on, on the <laughs> local you know playhouse and such uh i had a blast with it so i encourage children well, to to act just you know make sure you get paid as a former child i, I don't know how to feel about it <laughs> <laughs> as we all once were all right, so so I got a question about a uh, this thing. I'm, I'm feeling this phenomenon with the kind of reception of the film okay. here. So you have to you have to tell me uh, feel the same. So Master and Commander kind of fits this role of a film that you know wasn't successful in its time, was kind of rediscovered later, found a cult audience, and now is to a point where there is a you know a significant amount of fervor that outweighs any dissent. But everyone still treats it like it's some undiscovered jewel. I think it's well discovered by now. Yeah, like um, the reputation it has is so solidified that so everyone keeps who keeps saying it's underrated. Yeah, yeah. Really doesn't like understand like the, I think they're the cultural clinging, acceptance of it. I think they're clinging on to what its initial reputation was. Like I know how it feels to start that way. Like I did with like Under the Skin, where nobody had seen Under the Skin for five years that I was praising it. And suddenly everyone's seen my favorite movie and I'm like, oh, mm -hmm. you know, so, so I've got I've got a name for this to go with it, because I think, uh, okay. you know, we, we can start a movement here and maybe you can help identify some others like this. But I'm yeah. calling this I'm calling this the after hours effect. OK, because that's another film. that was the first film I really noticed that people were like, oh, man, it's such an underrated Scorsese <laughs> film. But like everyone thinks it's an underrated Scorsese yeah. film. So is it really underrated? I don't think so. I think at some point we have to move past that label and just decide it's part of the classic canon now. Like, all right, you know, maybe not at first, but now we've all come around to it. And yeah. I think that's definitely the case with Master and Commander here as well. Because that's the thing that's driven me to it. I've known about it for years, but it's always been because people are like, here is this overlooked film, big budget, spectacle, detail oriented, you know, historical. God, it's fucking you know. good too. Yeah, and it is, and it is really good. And so everyone told me for years, or you know, I see it on lists and things for yeah, forever. Yeah. So it it was definitely in like watching. I'm like, oh yeah, I could see why this wouldn't be successful in its time, but everyone seems to love it now. I'm trying to think of uh, other clear examples. Like I say, under the skin, I held on to for years, and then suddenly <laughs> everyone liked. And this happens a lot in horror movies. I find that uh, initially, less so lately. I think every horror movie released now is popular, but. Uh, everything from the 70s in horror uh, I spent years in the 90s being told that this movie is an underrated classic let's scare Jessica to death I think uh, past this mark this year where nobody had heard of the movie and now it's probably properly rated I don't have to go on about it every year now mm -hmm. 
How um, how long until Happy Death Day reaches the annals of this categorization? See, I think the problem is that's already popular enough. I mean, <laughs> I think it's I think it's got its due in a way. I think it found the audience. I mean, I agree with you. It has yeah. gotten its due. I'm ready to move on from it too. <laughs> uh, Happy Death Day Two, though, that, I think that's a whole <laughs> other kettle of fish. And Freaky, those are two movies that aren't even getting half of their critical needs met. I believe. I'm, I'm going to have to like bribe this director into not working anymore so I can avoid covering any more of the films. Um, you'll have to take it up with him, but uh, <laughs> I, I hope I'm, I'm surprised you're not adding him like with all of this mountains of praise you always give him to try and get some more, you know, attention. I'm surprised you're not like lobbying him to replace me on the podcast at this point. <laughs> uh, Christopher Lana, if you're hearing this, uh, this is an open invitation. <laughs> I, I can't think of very many that are like that. It's hard to say. I feel it's, like... Yeah, uh, now, off the top of my head, I'm a little lost, but uh, if think, we ever come around to one, just remember, we're calling it the After Hours Effect. After Hours that's, Effect. That's the organization I'm giving it here, is that these these films that everyone thinks are underrated. <laughs> I'd say Upstream Color eventually got to this place where everyone loved that movie, um, but nobody liked it at the time. Um what else would I say? Uh, Neon Demon, I think everyone says is underrated, but everyone likes, except for me. Um, <laughs> it's confusing. A lot of reference work, I feel like people think are that. People they probably never said, are. I'm pretty sure there was a, a, a stretch of time where Drive was in that category too. <laughs> I think I think yeah. Drive finally came around though. Like people just stopped saying that because now. they realized yeah. it it got popular. But it was for a while. Drive was definitely yes. an after hours kind of film. Only God forgives still needs to get there. One day you you all will catch up with his true masterpiece. I was so high when I saw that movie. That probably explains a lot. <laughs> I think uh, Peter Weir also has well another cult classic that I think is still in that categorization uh, a picnic at hanging rock i think still hasn't gotten quite its due is it it's, it's still I've, I've seen it acclaimed as the best australian film ever made which might say more about australian cinema than Peter <laughs> i think Weir, it but... might i feel like it's still not overly considered though i i feel like his work is always a notch above where it should be in reputation but i agree master and commander has had its moment i mean it's made up for years for for its Oscar snubs. It, I think it, it was, only won it, like sound design at the Oscars, which it is won a, incredible. It won a couple, but it was also like, if you looked, it had a kind of tough year going up. Like, it did. This was this was the year that Lord of the Rings came in and swept, which was like you know, it, it the first two films hadn't gotten their their dues, so it was like that time for them. But like Lost in Translation and Mystic River were also up for Best Picture, so it was like a it was a heavy hitter year. It only won two of them, uh, Best Cinematography and Best uh, Sound Editing, which is uh, remarkable enough. They, like, uh, recorded actual cannons. Um, they, so they have, like, the sounds of, like, the cannons whirring through the air and landing in the water. They recorded both the cannon and the balls and the water, and uh, they have that, like, multifaceted layered effect. So really incredible sound editing here really is though that first and last battle sequence are some of the the big highlights there 
it is a little bit of an erratic like kind of cutting to me yeah uh, i found like it, it can be hard to follow the action sometimes but i think that's that's also a product of the time the time of the filmmaking you know what the what was kind of vogue and such but uh that's really like my you know, chief issue with the film you know is that it could be a little clearer in its battle sequences the sequences themselves are still pretty masterfully staged yeah. and you know enthralling well mastered and commanded um i would say it's, <laughs> it's really good stuff i i don't actually have any really formal complaints about the movie it, I, I, I think one of the things i said is that i categorized it as a kind of hangout movie when i yeah. initially discussed it which i think it is in, in in lots of ways with a bit more like action than your typical kind of hangout movie this is a very like you know vague term in which we use to like categorize movies that are just kind of like they have a nice vibe to them and you dig the characters more than like the plots or the events or whatever right. you know but it, it really does fit into that mold i think and you know it was just a world that i was so ready to you know immerse myself in and you know characters that i could just like feel uh, a great camaraderie with and, I think that's you know, the thing too, is that it builds that crew feeling of these guys have a, a moreover, um, it doesn't have to go back home because you feel what they're like at home while they're on the boat. And moreover, you don't have to see their past because everything they do with each other implies a certain past that they've all experienced. And just experientially, yeah. it shows us all these things without telling us any of them. Beyond just the strong relationship between Russell Crowe and Paul Bettany, they got great chemistry and they're obviously mm -hmm. like the anchor of the film. Like I said, there's all these like side characters who are, you know, major parts of the crew and they have their own relationships and you invest in them. And so when they do inevitably kill off a few or they injure, you know, some or whatever, like it feels genuinely tragic. Yeah. I guess they went to like an English prep school and just picked up people for like the, the side characters and the extras and I, you believe in all of them. I think you believe in all of them that they've had an experience together and, and that they've, uh, they've gone through something. Yeah. It's very important. I think. Definitely feel it. I'm very glad that Russell Crowe is still championing the film on Twitter from <laughs> yes. trolls and such. He's very, he's obviously very proud of this film. I think he deserves to be, I you think know, so. so much investment put into, to this from, from everyone's part, it would appear, uh, you know, Russell Crowe, not always the best actor, but he's, he's pretty terrific here. I think I've come around on him a few times where I thought he was okay. He's okay. He's pretty good. He's great. I like, you know? I like Russell Crowe in, in most things. Um, he's not, he doesn't have like a great range, but he's doing his Russell Crowe thing. And I dig that, you know, even, even in, and, and then like, there's some areas where I can't fault him. Like, should he have played Javert in Les Mis? Probably no. not. <laughs> no. But if someone asked you to be Javert in Les Mis, would you turn them down? Even I'd, if you couldn't sing, I wouldn't I'd do anything in Les Mis. Uh, I exactly. So come on, like let's not rag on the guy anymore. You know, you would make the same decisions as him. <laughs> I, I he has uh, some very incredible roles. Just like the vision of him as the captain, uh, I have to compliment like the costuming. Some of my favorite um, in like a naval movie as well. Very um, feels like period correct costumes, but they also fit their characters and say something about them so well. It should be said that we keep saying that the film is very detail-oriented and period-correct, but we are far from experts on the matter, so our measure is based <laughs> off of our vague knowledge of what the you know Napoleonic <laughs> ships and you know crew may have looked like. It's based and on what me, other people have said. Yeah, it's based on me googling it and looking up historians and them saying it's fine. Like. I, <laughs> 
that's that's the best i could do and that's essentially what our job as critics is to do it's just to affirm the opinions of people smarter than us who already said the thing or to be more creative than the thing itself <laughs> there there's only two kinds <laughs> yes <laughs> those are the two kinds of critics and i think we've done both pretty well today <laughs> well thanks again calvin for uh getting here let's uh wrap up shall we uh, thanks everyone for tuning in this week. Make sure as always to check out our website, thetwingeeks.com for our latest reviews, retrospectives, and features. You can follow us on Twitter as well at the twin geeks and individually at Calvin Kempf and at David a punch. Don't forget to check out our sister video game show, the daydream cast with Pavlos and Brogan available on Apple podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are played. Leave a review and rating if you can, and we'll see you next week for another conversation on classic and contemporary cinema. Thank you.